0: Hello everyone, this is Jeremy, the so far mostly silent co-host for the Maelstrom Frequency. And this episode will continue that trend, but that's okay because Elaine Houlihan and Lowe Smith get into some really deep, interesting topics and you're going to hear what they have to say. If you are listening to this episode when it comes out on April 4th, then I want to give you a heads up that MCA has a performance at the end of this month. Bricolage is returning, and we have an incredible group of 10 artists who will be working in Paris to create new, amazing hybrid performance at Maelstrom. Bricolage is running April 27th to the 29th, and you can find more information about it on our website, maelstromcollaborativearts.org. Now I'll hand things off to Jasmine and our lovely guests, Elaine and Lowe.
1: If you could just introduce yourselves, pronouns, what your artistry looks like, and maybe a little bit about what's just on your mind today, like broadly speaking. Um, I'll start with you, Elaine. No pressure.
2: My name is Elaine. She, her are my pronouns. Um, You know, it's so funny. A few sentences about yourself as an artist is the question that we should all be prepared for at all times. (laughs) And yet. And yet. (laughs) (laughs) So I would, I guess I would describe myself primarily as a visual artist. Um, The... The form of my work, um, fluctuates, but I think a few common denominators that, that come through are a sense of tactility. Um, I work with fabric often, especially in the last few years. And, um, I guess I'll just leave it at that. We'll we'll see. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. Um, you know, we we talked a little bit about, like in this very exact moment, we talked a little bit about nerves. Sure. So I am gripping my fingers and ch- I'm sure once we start talking, I'll feel a little less, but I, you know, I'm a nervous person. So I'm feeling that at this moment, but mm-hmm. I'm also excited and interested. I always like talking with you, Jasmine. I'm excited to talk with Lo a little bit more. I really love the work Maelstrom does. So I mean, this is a really cool day and it's it, sunny outside. It what is. else do we need?
1: <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm very much with you. Uh, I also am a bundle of nerves. Uh, I try to remind myself that that's usually a sign that this is something you're excited about. Or like, at least you don't want to mess up in some dramatic way. Uh, and, you know, this is a safe space for all sort of experimental art and, and creation, such as a podcast, which takes us to low. Lo, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your art and your pronouns and
3: how absolutely. You feel? Hi, my name is Lo Smith. I am Low Smith Studios on Instagram and in the rest of life. Um, my pronouns are they/them. Currently, I'm in Detroit on uh, artist visit, so checking out different gallery spaces and like larger institutions and museums because um, I'm nosy, and that's also the work I do as an artist slash curator. It's also really sunny here but my power is out at my home right now. So I'm feeling apprehensive to walk into oh. my refrigerator. <laughs>
1: um, um, you mentioned that you're a curator, uh, but uh, also what arts do you work in in terms of like installation or just any sort of, uh, I, I know you do like printmaking. I, I just want to tease that. A little um, little so more.
3: I'm a cross disciplinary yeah. artist with a focus in printmaking. Um, meaning like, what is a rule? I don't follow those. Um, my education, so I've been an art teacher for a long time, or for a couple years, long time depending on who you talk to, um, but I came to installation because I was, like, I want to, I want my work to be experienced in, like, three dimensions, and, like, have to be able to, like, hold more than a two-dimensional piece of paper can, and, like, for folk to imbue their energy into my work, so that started off with, like, fabric scapes, and, um, fabric tents. That were die- like hand dyed, which borrowed from printmaking processes of like leaving an impression on 2D surfaces and then making them into 3D. Um, and I also do like community work and take my teaching into like workshop settings. Um, yeah, but I like do paper based work and printmaking. A lot of my installation um, is assemblage and archives and making like Afrofuturistic fictive worlds and then objects from those worlds and like kind of chasing down stories from those worlds when i was in school my final project was an installation because one i was working in multi multimedia, but all of my print work was informing what i did in the other media like the way that you work of like very being very process oriented and like that still shows up in my installation work um and like we are artists. We are like we have our disciplines, but no one's like holding like a like a slingshot to our heads of like you must stay within the discipline, like using what works to do what you're trying to do or say what you're trying to da- say, or like what works to explore what you're trying to explore. Um, printmaking, for example, like loves an impression, but like often isn't the thing itself. It's a record of the thing. And it's like okay, if I want to make the thing itself because i'm tired of playing with like records and copies and multiples i like want the like indistinguishableness of like a singular object what do i have to do Yeah,
1: oh, i love that thought uh mm-hmm. Elaine, what, you, what, what about you what is your process to this
2: yeah oh, I, lo- I love that thought too and there's something about um the excitement of how what do i need to do to do this what do i need to learn or what do i need to find to do this idea in my head that, um, to me makes art feel adventurous. And, and yeah, I just, I just love that sense of exploration. Um, but in terms of, you know, why installation, I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a kinesthetic person, um, you know, be feeling like bodily present or like physically engaged is important mm-hmm. um, to me as a person and as an artist. And I came into more of the quote unquote fine art um, realm through theater. So I, in, in high mm-hmm. school, while I was you know in art classes in high school, would spend my lunch in the art room in high school. <laughs> uh, but I was also in the drama club. And then when I went to college, I, you know, I've always kind of like skirted around, um, the theater landscape and, uh, you know, did kind of set painting, set design type things like that, which, um, I think really lends itself to that kind of atmospheric physical experience, um, that I think that's just how I understand the world. So then that, um, makes more sense. I mean, I do try to make two dimensional work and then it always ends up somehow getting off the page and being like a physical object in space. Um, You know, and I, I still, I'm not done trying. I mean, I love two dimensional work and I, I, you know, want to really like dig into it and figure out how it works for me. But I think just my natural inclinations go towards installation and 3d.
1: No, I think, uh, it's funny because like for me, I'm very much 2D learning to do 3D. And so I hearing very similar things, patterns, and sort of what you both are saying. And I'm curious, like, um, this is not what my next question was gonna be, but I'm gonna take it in this direction anyway. Is there like okay, it's two part question. One, is there like what do you think about when you think about a space that you want your art to be in, ideally speaking? Like what is your approach to space? What is your considerations? And then like part B to that question would be what would, and maybe it's the same answer, but what would be the ideal space? Like if you were working on whatever is in your head right now, as I'm talking, like everyone has an art project in their head right now. Um, So like, what would be like, where would that space look like? What would it be like? So what do you consider and what would the ideal be?
3: I think the ideal space for me is like, it depends on the project, right? And Mm -hmm. a lot of the way that I work is my projects exist in multiple spaces. So it's like, okay, so I think less in physical space and more in like, who's in that space? Like, who do I Mm -hmm. need to talk to? Who is this work for? And then secondary is like, okay, where are they? Like physically, where are they? So if I'm right now, I'm working on a project um, that involves like movement and performance and a costume, and I was like, I could exist on a beach or in a church basement or on a street corner or in a physical space because it's like attached to my own body. But I've had other installations that like need to manifest in physical space where like I hate, I hate the term um, dimensions variable <laughs> because it's like that can mean so many things. But thinking about like, 2D artists um, like Chloe Bass or Camilla Janon Machine or Angela Fegan Davis, all of which are printmakers and 2D artists who put their work in physical spaces on billboards and in queer club bathrooms and in parks on like reflective signs that are like human sized. Um, all of those take up space and are, like, exist in public space in very different ways but are very mm. particular to like what they need to be to exist in space. Like this needs to be a billboard or this needs to be a sign. That's like eye height, or this needs to be a poster in a bathroom. That the form itself is communicating Exactly. So like, I don't yeah. have an ideal space period. I have an ideal space for each, like, yeah, the art product that lives in my head that has an ideal space. Mm. Cause it like needs to be. Um, so like this project I'm working on, like needs to be at a human scale, like one-to-one. So, like, it would be, like, outside in a crowded space where I'm like, in a landscape. Um, but, like, how it exists in space is also informed by who was there right now. Like, could this exist in winter in Cleveland? Probably not. Um, no one's outside. <laughs> but that is... So I think space is this, like, very malleable, like, juicy thing that when we think about what does this need to be versus what space does it need to be in, then... If the object becomes, if the form and the object come before like venue and space or they're all in concert together at the same time, then there's a lot more places you can perform or like have an installation.
0: Great answer.
2: Uh-huh. Ah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> super interesting. Yeah. And as you were talking, it it made me think like there's no such thing as a blank space. Every mm-hmm. space is adding content and context to your work. Um, and changing how it is viewed. Um, and when you said Chloe Bass, I was thinking of, um, when she did the project in Cleveland, I think it was at spaces, um, and how, you know, questioning, like, where does the space of the art happen where the, you know, the presentation of the work, um, and she might, she's probably answered this somewhere. And I just either don't remember or haven't read it. so does the space of the art happen, you know, in the, you know, the photographs of the experiences. So she had a project. I'm not going to repeat it. Well, I don't think, but it was um, spending one-on-one time with people in Cleveland. So she was here um, and made appointments. And I think people maybe went on walks or she just joined mm. um, Clevelanders in their daily life Um. And we'll probably have to do a asterisk. <laughs> go read and see what else, what really it was about. Because <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just such an abbreviated version. But then, so if part of the art was Chloe spending time with someone as they're walking their dog, and then you see like the shoes at the gallery, and then you see like the picture, so it's like, where, where is the art? Is it the experience? Mm. Is it in the presentation? Is it both? Um, which I mean, I think is a little bit of a tangent inspired by what Lo was saying. Um, but I guess for me, when I'm thinking about space, I am thinking about the context and content of what that space is. Mm. Um, and recently when I, I, I'm finishing up my MFA and I had the chance to show, um, my final body of work in Cleveland. And then also I'm in a low residency program in Incline Village in uh, Nevada. So then show it in Nevada. So it's the same work in two different places. Mm. And that um, in here, actually Jasmine, you were there. Um, It was at Bay Branch Farm, um, which is on the west side of Cleveland. And it it is a sculpture installation in a working urban farm. Um, and then in at, at school it was a, a, a university gallery, so that got me thinking that I think I prefer contexts that are um, maybe not white wall.
1: Ooh, Sorry, got another call. There we go. You prefer contexts that are not white wall. Is the last thing you said?
2: Yeah, and and that's a question mark? Maybe. Mm. I I feel like, I feel like my, you know, standing back and looking at the two exhibitions, I like the one in Cleveland better. Mm. And Um, to
1: subscribe it just for people who didn't get to see it, who should see it by maybe going to your Instagram or website or, you know, one of those things. um, It was, I got to take photos of this installation. So it's, uh, I'm going to, you edit what I'm going to say next. Okay uh fabric based installation pieces of um they remind me of pillows they're very soft they're very um uh they like 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 rocks like nature based shapes very organic shapes that were placed within this urban garden that's in someone's like expanded backyard in a relatively like suburban neighborhood like it's it it felt sort of like like just walking in, you wouldn't know from the outside, like from the main street that there was a huge garden back there with like a greenhouse and things. And so you just have these like fabric based pieces, like in with, you know, these plants that are growing up and wild flowers and all this beautiful stuff. So just to kind of give that imagery, like that, that I could see what you're saying, like the conversation between the pieces of art, this sort of like the colors even that you use were like, more earth tones and organic in conversation with, and how that would be different than like you know your standard gallery white wall experience. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think the um, just the environment it change changes the work completely.
1: Piggybacking yeah. off of that, I, I'm curious too. You both have a relationship to art and education, both either going for at one point an MFA or, and in teaching. And I wonder where that winds into your practice. Um, And I'll start with you, Elaine. Uh, Is there, yeah, is there a, I don't want to say philosophy necessarily, but like, is there sort of an idea or a mindset behind that? Is it, I just got to pay the bills? What, what have you?
2: (laughs) Oh man, um, it's <laughs> no, not a hard question <laughs> at all. No pressure. Um,
1: yeah, just synthesizing your entire philosophy into you know three sentences. Right. <laughs> Sorry.
2: Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm on quite a journey with teaching at the moment, and I um, I love talking with other teachers. Um, I've taught yoga for twelve years. That's kind of how I started um, teaching, which is a different type of teaching than. Um, In like a a school, traditional school setting, but it's still, um, you know, I think of it like you're, and my yoga teacher said this at one point, you're a sculptor of the experience. So the way that my um, art practice and teaching practice overlap, it's, um, you know, we're, we're physically here in this present moment and what's happening in this present moment. And what are we, what are we doing with it, you know? And um, there's a specific uh, goal to a yoga experience, or a specific goal to, you know, a, a visual experience that I create. Um, so it's about practicing being present. It's about present. It's about practicing listening. Um, it's about being intentional with community—it's um, about being—it's sh- about sharing, um, kind of what I found in my life to be most meaningful. Um, that all said, <laughs> I have been—I'm not as burnout as I used to be, mm. and I—I I probably started teaching art classes about eight years ago, but there was a period where. I was so severely burnt out with teaching and it takes so much focus and so much energy. And I was just reading an article about decision fatigue. And part of the reason why perhaps teachers are so exhausted is that um, we're making more decisions moment by moment. Um, My, over the years I've kind of, um, I, I was an independent contractor teaching with, Lot of different places, which I really love. Um, kind of as an artist, just learning what the inside of an architecture firm is like, you know, because I had a weekly yoga class there, or learning what it's like to work at Metro Health, because I was the yoga teacher there for, you know, many years. Um, but slowly I've dwindled it away. My only teaching right now is through Fostering Hope. We're a nonprofit, we work with youth in. Um, foster care and residential treatment. So I'm, um, you know, I teach yoga and art classes, uh, to kids six to 18 usually. Um, and the, you know, the art, the type of art that we do kind of changes depending on what the youth are interested in. Some, uh, painting is like really popular, but sometimes it's origami, sometimes it's paper mache, sometimes it's, drawing sometimes it's um oh what else have we done there's another one I can't remember <laughs> so but oh writing you know so um so that's the kind of teaching that I've um done and saying all that I forgot <laughs>
1: that the, uh getting into decision fatigue and oh
2: like- yeah so yeah like I I'm really wrestling with myself on continuing teaching mm-hmm. um, um it's a hard decision I'm 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 bad at taking care of myself and teaching at the same time mm-hmm. I'm bad at balancing that
1: that's real that's yeah. <laughs> very understandable. Uh, Lo let's get you in here. Uh, so what is yeah your experience in teaching what do you teach and sort of where are you in that? process or experience
3: yeah um i am currently a professor at the cleveland institute of art i am right now teaching a course on propaganda and printmaking um, it's a great time i'm really enjoying working with students and getting to design and implement my own syllabus um, i've taught high school and elementary school art type classes since about 2015 and, like, supervise, like, senior projects, doing, like, 3D modeling, coding, and, like, tech and art things, in addition to, like, teaching after school. So, like, I get the independent contractor grind, where, like, you have one job that's <laughs> actually, like, six jobs. Um, and, like, one set of students I might be teaching, like, basic how to, like, code, a, like, checkers, and another one, like, making rocket ships out of cardboard tubes, um, which really... I, I consider teaching a part of my practice. I, like, don't think I could teach and not have an art, artistic outlet. But also, like, in addition to f- decision fatigue is kind of this, like, okay, have finite amount of energy and finite amount of creative energy, which, like, we we don't like to say as artists. <laughs> it's Like, I'm an ever, right. like, ever-running spring of creativity and ability. <laughs> it's like, no, you're a human being. Um, <laughs> so I think the my one of my struggles with teaching is like okay if I'm putting all of this creative energy into which I want to do and enjoy doing into like writing the mm-hmm. syllabus or like designing this this lesson that both has um, social political context and history and also like very like hard skills of printmaking like hard skills within like soft skills and hard skills like how do you balance that mm-hmm. where students are both like exercising their brain and like developing like new like synaptic connections through like differentiated processes and like how do I get that to like play nicely with like we're making a hundred prints today (laughs) Um, (laughs) because it's the processes these are like old ass processes hundreds if not thousands of years old depending if you're doing painting or ceramics or printmaking um, that there's not much new, there's new that people can learn, but there's not much new about it, but people are always trying to make a new, so it's very difficult to make a new, if we, like, think about like, oh, Duchampian was, like, 70, 80 years ago, of, like, the ready-made, because ready-mades were new at the time, so, like, how do you intervene in a process that's so old? Oh. Yeah, Yeah, so, and, like, how do you teach that in a way that's, like, relevant, especially if you have uh, processes that like might not be that popular anymore, such as most of them in filmmaking.
1: <laughs> I was gonna say, like, yeah, is there like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, my only comparison is, um, I, I also used to teach like an after-school program for high school, middle school, and high school students, journalism and video production. And so, like, for that, there was this very stark like evolution in technology that happened as I was teaching. Um, That kind of like shifted the way I could teach. And I'm curious, just in terms of printmaking, like, I don't, it sounds like it's saying that the, the techniques that you're using are, you know, traditional classic techniques. Is there any sort of like, uh, hmm, what's the, like, I don't know the process of printmaking, I'm realizing as I'm saying <laughs> this. Um, I'm like, wait a second, actually, I guess there really wouldn't be too much.
3: You you informed me. (laughs) Can I rephrase your question and see if it's a question you're asking? Please. So given that this is like a classic and ancient technology that like the tech has not changed in hundreds of years, except for silkscreen, how do I translate that when like that evolution of technology happened like almost a hundred years ago?
1: Yes, that is the thing I was trying to get at. I appreciate you for asking yourself the question. Could you answer (laughs)
3: yeah absolutely so like my kind of intro point which is why i'm enjoying this class on propaganda is like often i this is gonna be a little bit long but that's fine so propaganda itself is misunderstood or like correctly understood as like oh it's a negative thing because it's associated with world war one world war two and the nazis it's like well propaganda is just visual communication and like the nazis really like ran with it so like they kind of like own that word but propaganda what used to be propaganda departments are now pr and marketing departments and like they literally just changed the name nothing else about how they function outside of like how technology has progressed but it's the same impetus of like how do we get people to change their behavior or get people to engage in a behavior they weren't currently engaged with through visual communication and the first people to do that were printmakers so Mm. that thrust is embedded in printmaking so you have martin luther not martin luther king martin luther the 95 theses was like i have a problem with the church and he um he printed in secular german not latin so people could actually read his theses and nailed them on the door it's like unclear historically if that was real but it is real that printmaking democratized knowledge and movable type democratized knowledge so like embedded in this process is like people knowing other things and people, how people use printmaking through time changed. So like the first like printing presses were in every city because that's how you made newspapers was a printing press. So like there's this technology that has kind of developed and grown alongside people in their desire to know things and then was like kind of pushed out of being with the advent of the computer and data processors on computers. But it's having, like, it's renaissance because you also had the first illustrations before cameras existed. The first reproducible Mm -hmm. illustrations were made through printmaking. So there's, like, this ubiquitous presence of this technology within human history that, like, is kind of falling out of ill. So the people who decide to become printmakers are people who are like, this technology and this legacy are important to me. And it's important that we, like, maintain and protect them. So, like, how do I get someone who's, like, doesn't know what like a dial what dial up sounds like or what a rotary phone is mm. to like connect with this like history of protecting the production of knowledge um, even like xerox machines like that's a type of printmaking risograph that's a type of printmaking so it's this like kind of silent but ever-present technology around like producing and protecting knowledge and protecting mal- marginalized voices by allowing folk to print things without having to go through channels of production and publishing houses um so to answer the question to make it into a three word <laughs> answer or three sentence answer of um, how do you teach this thing it's like well silkscreen like everyone owns a silkscreen t-shirt like you own silkscreen materials mm. but you might not know that was a process in the same way that you own a photograph like all these processes exist around you and build the world you exhibit and or inhabit um but you might not be aware of them or how they came about. Like, silkscreen, which is on t-shirts, and offset printing, which is what makes newspapers and magazines, came from lithograph, like lithography, and intaglio, which are, like, stone-based processes.
2: I want to take your class, Lo.
3: Right, I I want (laughs) to teach more. I want to teach, like, why, why you should think these things are important. I never think they're important, but, like, that's part of the teaching of, like, this thing... Is inaccessible unless you take these very specific questions or these very specific classes.
1: And that's the thing. It it reminds me of like gets it's funny because it comes back to sort of what I was getting at with just teaching journalism and video production. Like the access that the democratization that you mentioned is like this is a new like especially for video and camera and 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 that sort of realm of technology this is a very new era of of having access to being able to produce and tell your own stories in this way with this visual language that is around us all the time you you don't think about editing until you have to do it but you know what a cut is you know what a fade to black is you know what you know a close up is and what it means significantly different from a wide shot and like that was my end with my students was like you innately understand the power of this thing and now I get to teach you the artistry behind it and like why it's important to have like this on-ramp to being able to tell your own stories in this specific way and so I can see that that parallel here with like you know printing is foundational um and so you should have access to that foundation and I'm curious like I'm gonna I have to like turn myself a little bit to Elaine and make sure like I'm making eye contact while still facing the mic. So you can't see this and that's why I'm narrating it for you. Um, (laughs) But Elaine, um, I'm curious in terms of teaching because I've also done this other side where like you, you're put in a teaching position because you're teaching more of the, just the art of learning to express yourself in art in general, right? Like that. And, and there's an on ramp to that too, and I wonder if you can kind of speak to that, like the even if it's you know building a rocket one week or like you know uh, painting or writing, it, it it there's still that like I don't you may maybe you'll tell me differently, but I I found working with like a broader audience of of students that you kind of have to get them over this initial hump that they can't even do it at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to any of that sort of experience.
2: Yeah. Uh, and as Lo was talking um, like that kind of core connection of almost um, and forget, I'm, I'm a hyperbolic person, but like, it's, it's a kind of magical experience to be with a group of people who are engaged in Their creative processes, because that's what I found most meaningful in my life. And then witnessing others um, go through that process of like having an idea and making it, you know, something that exists outside of their body or outside of their mind um, is just the most incredible thing. So, what you're saying is exactly right. One of the initial hurdles is. That process is frustrating. That process Mm -hmm. for everyone. I -hmm. don't know anyone that doesn't struggle, hasn't cried, (laughs) hasn't bled, sweat, all those things. Um, So something that an art teacher said to me in school was the trash cans only half full. So that's something that kind of we start on Mm. in, in the beginning is that I I hear you. Let's have all of our feelings about it because, <laughs> I, I I have been there. Um, and then next class, we're gonna do it again. Mm-hmm. You know, and and also being present with tools, not to tell a student this is the way you draw a portrait and this is how it's better. This is how you draw an eye, but more. Um, I do a lot of kind of tracing for my students or Mm. um, bring in pictures that are traced because just having kind of that um, on-ramp, I love that word and to get that muscle memory to, Mm. to start drawing a picture that you like, even if it was traced, it um, it does build like a confidence. So Mm. then the next class, Oh, I have this, I have this idea. I have this new idea, um, you know, and, and, you know, maybe we're searching uh, inspiration images and then they're combined, you know, because the, the possibility is there or the idea or the, you know, oh, I've done this one, you know, it's, that it's, practice, it. yeah, that yeah. practice kind of getting in a routine. Um, yeah. And then, and having, having tools, but not answers. I think.
1: Mm. Forgive me if this is a little like woo woo, but you know, I'm a woo woo person. What? If there is anything overarching, are you trying to communicate in your work? Maybe currently, maybe within the last few years, is there an idea, a concept a, a a vibe, anything you're trying, especially in, in relationship to the fact that you so much of what you both are thinking about is space and it's relationship to your physical experience that sort of, I'm i am making weird hand gestures. Um, <laughs> I don't have a word for that, but that vibe, that weird feeling of like this thing that's, we know it's tangible. We don't have words for, um, is there, yeah. Is there a theme or a, a thing you're working within? Um, uh, I'll start with Elaine and come back to Lowe.
2: Yeah. If my artist statement could be a series of hand gestures, <laughs> life would be so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, it, uh, I mean, a lot of what I've been exploring um, has to do with um, I, I work with used objects, things that, you know, I say sometimes have they've lived their own life before they came into art and that um, there's some sort of recording either like woo-woo recording or physical recording on that object of that use. Like um, clothes get holes, they get sweat stains, Um, you know, they've been to, you know, birthday parties and walks outside and work. Um, So I really, there's something about an object that has been previously used um, that I'm interested in in working with, in terms of um, how we, and this is where the hand gestures come in, Mm. like everyone has their own kind of intimate relationship with those things, Mm. Um, and and even, maybe even an unconscious relationship with those things. And what does familiarity make invisible to us? Because, we're interacting and navigating all these relationships and so much um kind of becomes given or automatic so by recontextualizing use clothing um spaces how we're physically in relationship to objects maybe and and this is maybe making a leap or maybe i'm on the beginning of this journey and i'll i'll get there artistically but then how are we um you thinking about our relationships with each other you know does the, one of my original questions about a year ago is how does how we treat objects um in influence how we treat each other
1: it, i was going to say this reminds me of the again correct me if i get it wrong project you did recently where um you were like un sewing like a a blanket
2: sweater a hand, a hand knit sweater. A hand knit sweater. Yeah. sweater. That's what it was.
1: And yeah, that like that in the process of unknitting that sweater, you're you're kind of exploring sort of what the use of the sweater was, the experience of the sweater. When would you wear such a cozy sweater? Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of discovering that in in that process is that
2: yeah kind of around that same yeah yeah the sweater was a really good tool to kind of um, workshop a lot of those ideas because mm-hmm. unknitting something that's handmade you know, like I'm kind of going through the process. I I don't know who made this sweater. I thought it was my mom. Turns out it wasn't. So it's a mystery sweater. (laughs) So it's kind of, you know, I felt, and being like um, someone who likes to do those kind of, um, you know, lap work projects myself, going through the process of of someone's hands touch this, hours were spent making this, but also like what does all the string of a sweater look like when it's stretched out into one long, <laughs> one long um line or, you know, how many times does the yarn of a sweater wrap around my house? The answer is 24. Oh, How many lengths of my body does the yarn that it takes to make a sweater have? Mm-hmm. The answer is 420, I think something like that. <laughs> so it's like, who cares, you know, I can look at a sewing pattern and I know that this many yards of string is t- is needed to make a sweater, but when you kind of work backwards through like, well, this is like the human experience of it or mm. this is like the function of life, um, it's just an invitation to maybe look at things differently, sure. maybe slow down, yeah, maybe be a little more curious.
1: I, I, I love it. And lo, for you, you did kind of the same question is this-
2: I think
3: why practice is really Elaine might relate to this as trying to, with each breath I take in the practice, expand a little bit, like expand mm-hmm. my ribcage and like the like depth of the practice and the breath and like the breadth of the practice. So right now I'm working on a project called Beg Baddies with Euphoric Gender um i was gonna ask about this i'm so glad you mentioned it okay yeah so i i also do like fiber works and like my introduction to making was my grandpa was a tailor um and a fake architect and would like draw housing elevations and he taught me to draw he and also taught me to knit and how to sew so my like introduction to making things was very like in this like practical way that then as i became like a high schooler and a college student became more like art historical um and referential to other things and that's how i found printmaking i was like oh this is it this is it this is all i'm ever going to do um, <laughs> and but beg is particularly during the pandemic where like i didn't have access to a press uh, all i had access was my silk screens and i started knitting and crocheting a lot and that led me to the formation of this project beg um, thinking about like gender expansiveness and bodies and like constructing your own self-image in this space where, like, I'm just spending a lot of time by myself. Like, I'm not being witnessed by anyone else. Um, And I was non-binary out before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic really gave me the space to be like, okay, what do I want that to, like, physically look like? And Mm. looking at these, like... And I'm not going to mention any particular, but looking at these uh, gender-neutral or, like, comfortable clothing lines, I'm like, these are sad gray sacks, and I am not a sad gray sack. So, like, what can I do about this? And... having that reflected back to me by like friends and other queerdos and other artist people who are like, well, part of my installation praxis is making worlds I want to live in um, and making worlds that like make sense to me. So like, how can I do that in like an immediate way? So it is like rebirth gar- garments and Noel Pulo are two designers who also do this, two artists, designers who also do this. Um, and it's not about like making a clothing like, a clothier or, like, atelier, like, not, it's not about making the clothing line as much as it is, it's, like, okay, what are, like, body-based and somatic practices about identity that can translate into, like, knit and sewn garments? Um, so, for example, one of my sweaters is, like, a fidget sweater um, where it's, like, a big gray granny square panel with cro- that's added crochet on top, this, like, stringy hung crochet so you can fidget with it. Um, which is, like, a nod to neurodivergency, but isn't, like, a straitjacket, which is the, like, most common piece of neurodivergent clothing, <laughs> um, and is, like, okay, how do we, like, nothing, I know nothing like this exists, because, like, it recognizes a need that, like, you're supposed to be, like, shameful about, or, like, that's what fidget toys are for, mm-hmm. but it's, like, okay, it was less trying to put a fidget toy into clothing and more addressing, like, what are things I need to feel comfortable in the space, um, is, like, the ability to fidget, so I could, like, put that on a sweater. Um, So that's what baddies with euphoric gender is, so, like, doing those experimentations, teaching people how to knit and crochet, and that's, again, that, like, deep breath of expansion, because, like, the (laughs) opposite... Not not the direct opposite of a lathe, but the process... So as opposed to the process of frogging or pulling apart, like, what if we free-formed together? piece of clothing that like might not be a sweater because it's like someone who doesn't know how to knit or crochet like put it together um, but (laughs) is a very patchy experience of love Um, and that has becoming so again not a clothing line but like these like thrusts into like manifesting clothes that like make sense for our bodies and our experiences like not in a design way but in a like uh, kind of like P.E.A.P.A. and the Lost Let Boys smashed together way. Yeah. Um, and I'm really enjoying it. And the latest iteration is I like made a hundred cranny squares and I put them on TikTok. And that's how I made friends on TikTok. Um, and people were like, oh, you should make a blanket. I was like, no, no, this is going to be a suit. So having fun. I think there's a level of like, <laughs> we are serious professional artists and we like take ourselves and our work very seriously because it's like important to us but I'm also like do bullshit silly things with your work like yes. chase down <laughs> these nuggets of joy that like might not fit into the um, into like the narrative of self that you've made like sheep granny squares don't really fit into like my manifested work with printmaking but they bring me intense joy so I'm gonna keep making them
0: Maelstrom Frequency is a production of Maelstrom Collaborative Arts. To learn more about Maelstrom, you can visit us at maelstromcollaborativearts.org or find us on social media. If you'd like to support this podcast, and we would be thrilled if you would, you can do so at maelstromcollaborativearts/donate. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks.